This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jimi Hendrix died at the age of 27, and he died under mysterious circumstances. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Three would be the number of theories that armchair detectives would bandy about for years after Jimmy's untimely death in 1970. Another two would be the number of hitmen Michael Jeffrey, Jimmy's manager, sent on a covert mission to drown Jimmy with booze and pills if, as one theory goes, Michael Jeffrey killed Jimi Hendrix. Two more would be the number of white paramedics who refused to revive and treat the famous black rock star as they drove him to an undignified death at St. Mary Abbott's Hospital. If, as another theory goes, the neglectful paramedics really did kill Jimi Hendrix. 20. 20 is the number of the recommended dosage of Vesperex, a powerful barbiturate that would be found in Jimmy's body 20 times the recommended dosage, all totaling 27. On this, our final episode of season one, covert hitmen, neglectful paramedics, 20 times the recommended dose in Jimi Hendrix. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
James Tappy Wright wished he could unhear what he just heard. It shocked him. It challenged everything he knew. It rocked his world, and it scared the shit out of him. Michael Jeffrey had just confessed to Jimi Hendrix's murder. Not in so many words, that is. It was strongly implied. He had no choice, he told Tappy. He was out of options. He had to do it. Tappy and Michael Jeffrey were at Jeffrey's apartment in February 1973, discussing the upcoming American leg of the Jimmy Plays Berkeley tour. They had just finished touring the documentary film around the UK and Europe, where they had sold out venues and continued to spread the gospel of Jimi Hendrix. His death was still fresh in the minds of many. The movie could give fans a thing that they would never be able to experience again. A live performance by Jimi Hendrix, delivered on a 30-foot-tall movie theater screen. And they had a few drinks and a few more, and Jeffrey was relaxed but also a little drunk. Tappy had noticed a change in Jeffrey's recent daily demeanor. He was no longer under pressure, no longer under the gun. And Tappy would notice he had been working for Jeffrey since the days back in Newcastle, running clubs and bringing up the animals. A respected roadie, a doer, Tappy was there through it all, did what needed doing, helped here, helped there. Tappy was everywhere, rubbing elbows with everyone, from the Beatles and the Rolling Stones to Ike and Tina Turner to Elvis Presley. And he was there as Jeffrey took on more responsibility with Jimmy in the studio, took on more debts, new debts to pay for old debts, even newer debts to pay for the new debts to pay for the old debts. Tappy was the one who would drive Jeffrey out to New Jersey, to a secluded suburban mob house. He'd sit in the car, tap his fingers on the steering wheel as he listened to the Archies, the Foundations, to Tommy James and the Shondells while Jeffrey was inside doing his business, shaking hands, making deals signing his life away. Jeffrey would walk back to the car, suitcase in hand, loaded up with fresh bills handed to him by mafia kingpins, the guys who could afford to live in these ostentatious New Jersey mansions. Tappy was there too when the calls started coming in. When Jeffrey couldn't pay the mafia back, Jeffrey was overextended, ambitious, and greedy. Michael Jeffrey was fucked. Where's the money, Michael? The heated mob voices would say from the other end of the phone. Where's the fucking money, shithead? Tappy started living his life by looking around every corner, checking underneath cars before getting inside, screening phone calls, remaining extremely wary of strangers. He lived his life every day like someone was coming for his boss, Michael Jeffrey's head. And now, sitting in Jeffrey's apartment, reminiscing on a wildly successful documentary film tour, things seemed more relaxed. Tappy was no longer on edge. Jeffrey had paid off the IRS, paid off the mob. He was even able to buy out Jimmy's interest in Electric Lady Studios from Jimmy's father, Al. Tappy wanted to know, where did Jeffrey get all that money? Why was everything coming up roses? And that's when the mood of the room changed. Jeffrey tensed up. It had obviously been weighing on him all this time. The secret he had. He had many secrets, all collected through many years of his life, but this one, this one may have been the hardest to keep inside. Because even though Jeffrey was a great keeper of secrets, this one felt different. I had no bloody choice, Jeffrey told Tappy. The implication hung there in the air, like a thick fog of Dunhill smoke. The look in Michael Jeffrey's cold eyes filled in the blanks. The look said a lot. Mostly it said, I'm a survivor. When the shithouse starts to go up in flames, I'm the motherfucker with the fire extinguisher. I'm Michael Jeffrey. I do what needs doing to get myself undone. I'm a man, 
a qualified man. The look filling in the space around Jeffrey's last comment, I had no bloody choice. It also said it was the payout and the $2 million insurance policy he took out on Jimmy's head. And it was the insurance policy that rescued Jeffrey from certain ruin or even death from his debtors, the mob. Again, according to James Tappy Wright, Michael Jeffrey had no bloody choice. Tappy could believe it. Michael Jeffrey, former agent of the Special Forces for the British Intelligence. Michael Jeffrey, mobbed up. Michael Jeffrey, professional badass. Michael Jeffrey, trained killer. Or so he told Tappy. Jeffrey sold that image hard, and guys like Tappy bought it hook, line, and sinker. Tappy put two and two together. Jeffrey's vague confession and the reports from the attending doctors about the red wine that had been in Jimmy's mouth and throat, but not in his stomach. And now, Tappy was burdened with this bombshell, one of a handful of people who knew about it. He wished he didn't. He'd been on the sidelines for most of his life, on a need-to-know basis, and now he was privy to the deepest, darkest secrets. He sat across the table from Jeffrey in the apartment and picked up what was being put down. Tappy was convinced that Jeffrey had offed Jimmy, convinced that Jeffrey had sent a couple of goons to that apartment in Notting Hill, and it was there that they forced the red wine down Jimmy's throat until he drowned. James Tappy Wright sat on his bar stool in a near-empty seaside Whitley Bay pub, convinced Michael Jeffrey killed Jimi Hendrix. His imagination went into overdrive. He could see it all, how it all could have come together, and it was moving fast. When Michael Jeffrey got the news that Jimmy had taken meetings with Chaz Chandler and Alan Douglas, it was the last straw. Tappy knew this. He knew Jimmy meeting with Chaz again would have flipped out his boss, Jeffrey. So Tappy knew that if Jeffrey did what he thought he did, then he'd have the idea circling around in his head for a while before moving on it, before taking it from just an annoying thought to an idea he needed to execute on. Michael Jeffrey's days as manager to the greatest guitar player in the world were numbered. If Jeffrey lost Jimmy, Tappy figured, then he would have no way out from his mob debts. So Jeffrey moved quick. If he was gonna survive, avoid being clipped by the Mafia, then Jimi Hendrix had to go. It was the only way. For Michael Jeffrey, it was never a question of if he could do it. It was a question of how. In his rampant imagination, Tappy could see Jeffrey going into full James Bond mode, total Mission Impossible waking fantasy. Tappy saw Jeffrey tightening his cufflinks, smoothing his pressed white shirt, donning his black jacket, punching his cuffs, methodically cleaning the lenses of his dark prescription glasses with the pocket square from his suit jacket, the theme from Peter Gunn playing in a loop in his head on max volume. Tappy knew the training from Jeffrey's days lay dormant inside of him, and that Jeffrey thought of it as an ace up his sleeve. It was in part what gave him the balls to deal with the mafia types he so casually borrowed money from. That training coiled inside of him like a sleeper cell, ready to be activated, covert, deep cover, but no more. 
Now, it was live. Shit was on. Warner Brothers weren't the only ones with half a fucking clue. Michael Jeffrey knew how thin the mortal coil was being stretched by his client, Jimi Hendrix. So he took out a $2 million life insurance policy on his star attraction as well. And now, after all the bullshit, after the arrest in Toronto and the subsequent trial, the kidnapping at the Salvation Club, the shakedowns on the streets of Harlem, the drugs and the girls and the constant deviation from the master plan, after Jimmy collapsing on stage and barely escaping an island on fire, after coming out from under a recording studio that was hell-bent on sinking no matter how hard they tried to keep it afloat, after the back alley fistfights and threatening phone calls and claims of illegitimate children, after all the other fame-hungry hangers-on who wanted a piece of Jimmy's pie, after all of that, it was time, finally, for Michael Jeffrey to cash in on his voodoo child cash cow, to quit while he was ahead. Jimmy wasn't gonna listen anymore. Jeffrey had resorted to keeping Jimmy as preoccupied and disoriented as possible. He controlled his mind by dosing him with drugs. He controlled his location by buying him that swank house outside of Woodstock. He controlled his creativity by giving him the recording studio of his dreams. He did all of this just so he could minimize the amount of not listening that Jimmy would do. Tappy knew that Jeffrey knew that the simple truth was that he, Michael Jeffrey, could not carry on with Jimi Hendrix. If Jimmy's behavior didn't drive him to the point of no return, then his debt to the mob to keep him and Jimmy happy and on the charts certainly did. Jeffrey had no other artist in his stable that was enough of a moneymaker. He wasn't going to bring home the bacon with soft machine, no offense. He was losing his grip, and he was too smart to not know that Chaz Chandler wasn't too far behind. Chaz was always there when it came to Jimmy, never quite out of the picture, waiting in the cut, about to strike and steal Jeffrey's voodoo child right out from under him, cut him down to size. Tappy heard the rumors. Shit, they weren't even rumors, they were more like public declarations. Jeffrey was a cheat, a scoundrel, an opportunist. Eric Burden flat out accused Jeffrey of stealing money from the animals. And Burden let anyone who would listen know that he thought Michael Jeffrey was a dirty thief, that he set up an offshore tax haven, funneled skim and earnings from his bands into it to avoid heavy UK taxes. Move money around from country to country, island to island, suitcase to suitcase, good fellow to good fellow. Tappy knew that if Jimmy didn't know what Burden knew, that he would know soon enough, and he fucking A knew that Michael Jeffrey would have known this too. Known this, that if Jimi Hendrix cut Michael Jeffrey loose, then Jimi Hendrix was a fucking dead man. No Jimmy, no money. No money, no more yank with the boys from Jersey. It was a death sentence for Jeffrey. And if the mob didn't get him, then the IRS would. They'd take the studio, his houses, his fancy clothes, his fancy drugs. They'd take every last thing and leave him with barely the shoes on his feet. He'd have to take the subway or the tube to work in some downtown shithole, or worse, to the unemployment office like some ordinary Joe. Fuck that. He wasn't going to let that happen. He got in the zone, he got in character, and he moved with the quickness. Tappy could see it all happening. Michael Jeffrey as Michael Caine in Funeral in Berlin doing what had to be done to save his ass, a qualified man, smashing a motherfucker's face in with a vase of roses without thinking twice if need be. But, but, he wasn't about to get his own hands dirty in the process. Jeffrey was too smart for that. Tappy knew it. Best for Jeffrey to stay on the sidelines, call the shots from behind his dark prescription glasses. Don't risk that $2 million life insurance payout. The goons listened intently, and Michael Jeffrey spoke. This is what you're gonna do, he told them. Jimmy and his old lady are palling around town today. 
Go sweat the Samarkand. She's got a room there. Wait till he's alone. Even if you have to wait all night. Wait. You'll be watching. You'll be waiting. When he's alone, that's when you'll do it. Tappy could see them in his mind's eye. The goons, there, peering inside the Samarkand flat window, hiding under cover in the small gardens and wrought iron fencing out front. They watched while Monica made Jimmy the tuna sandwich, their own bellies rumbling. They just needed to get this over with so that they could go eat. They were starving. The sun was coming up. Monica's eyes were going down. She passed out, and Jimmy absentmindedly grabbed a fistful of sleeping pills, Monica's Vesperex, and slugged them back with another swig of wine from the glass next to the bed. It felt like he hadn't slept in days, and at this moment it was all he needed. The pills to do the trick. And little did he know, he was making the job for the goons waiting outside all the more easy. The goons stood quiet, watching, whispering, waiting. A few hours later, Monica woke, walked drowsily around the apartment, and then she left, took a hike on up the street, left Jimmy passed out cold in bed. It was time. The goons tried the front door, unlocked. They were in, easy. They swept into the flat like a gust of wind, closed the door behind them, deadbolt, latched. They spoke in hand signals, blinks of the eye, head nods. They were in all black, black pants, black shirts, black beanie hats, and they moved swiftly. Tappy could see them in his mind, and now he thought of another Michael Caine reference. Gambit, the goons would have been tall, one rotund, the other sickly, a real yin and yang thing, one lanky, one short, stacked. The sickly goon spied the bottle of red wine on the kitchen counter waiting for them, just as Jeffrey had said. Jimmy's kryptonite, Jeffrey called it. The fellas should use it to their advantage. Jimmy was laying in bed, fully clothed, on top of the sheets. His black strat nestled next to him. The two stood over sleeping Jimi Hendrix and the sickly goon pulled a cork from the half-empty bottle of red wine. It made a startling, popping sound, loud enough that Jimmy was roused. He started mumbling, something about Brian Jones, something about Otis Redding, like he was talking to them. The sickly goon with the wine bottle motioned to his partner, who grabbed the front of Jimmy's shirt and lifted his head slightly from the pillow. Jimmy's eyes fought to open up, but the pills were fighting him. He just kept mumbling, Brian, 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 like a tick, like it was on a loop in his brain. And the sickly goon squeezed Jimmy's prone cheeks with his left hand and shoved the wine bottle into Jimmy's mouth with his right. The bottle was turned upside down and the red wine came out like it had busted through a floodgate. Jimmy's eyes still weren't fully open as he started to guzzle the booze that was being forced on him. When the bottle smacked against one of his front teeth, he started to choke, made retching noises, sending sips of wine splattering onto the sickly goon's black jacket. The two held him there, made him take it, made him taste it, made him swim in it, drown in it. After the last drop was out of the bottle, they dropped Jimmy's head back down onto the pillow. He was unconscious again, it seemed, but his chest was still heaving. The goon split fast, the empty wine bottle was recorked, put back on the kitchen counter, and they could hear sputtering and retching coming from the bedroom, and then silence. They left at the front door, closed it behind them. They had done Michael Jeffrey's bidding, and now they were getting something to eat, and they were fucking starving. And James Tappy Wright, sitting on his bar stool, but a year after his boss's most famous client up and died, was thirsty as fuck. The thought of it all, the why, the how, the who, it shook Tappy with fear. He pushed the whodunit to the back of his mind, straightened himself out on his stool, shrugged, and ordered another pint. It could have happened that way, but Tappy wouldn't know for sure. 
The only thing he was sure of was that Jimi Hendrix was dead and that Michael Jeffrey was a bad, bad man. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Monica Danneman spoke calmly as she told her attorney the same story she'd been telling the world for over 20 years. The same story she told the day Jimi Hendrix died. The same story she told in The Inner World of Jimi Hendrix, the book she had just published. The same story she was now being taken to court over in 1996, charged with libel against Kathy Etchingham, another of Jimi Hendrix's former girlfriends. But Monica didn't see herself as just another girlfriend, she told the attorney. Monica Danneman hadn't known Jimi Hendrix for that long. The connection she felt was strong. And who were they to tell her that her connection wasn't strong? she didn't feel the way she felt or that Jimmy wasn't as true blue as she believed him to be. The haters were just jealous. They wanted what she had and they couldn't have it. Boo fucking who for them. When she first met Jimmy in a bar in Dusseldorf, it was all over, all downhill. She left Germany, left her job as an ice skating instructor and went where Jimmy went. Sometimes she'd get his attention, other times not. And they had a few nights together here, a few nights together there. And then those last days in London at the Samarkand. She had his complete attention. 
In the garden, he told her he loved her. He told her that he would marry her. Didn't matter if he said those same things to other girls on other days in other gardens. He belonged to her now, and she wasn't about to let go. When Kathy Etchingham thought Monica was off her nut, deluded, that she had casually met Jimi Hendrix in a bar in Dusseldorf and almost instantly concocted a fantasy where she and Jimi were the leading roles. And furthermore, she would say whatever she needed to say to push other people, people like Kathy, further out of the picture. No one was going to write her out of history, least of all a delusional ice skater. Monica had been accused of a lot of things in Jimmy's death, accused of neglect, lies, accused of poisoning him, accused of waiting too long to call an ambulance. But she stuck to her story. She sat across the table from her attorney and spoke her truth, the things she believed. Others called them conspiracies, fantasies, falsehoods meant to benefit no one but Monica Daneman, but she stood her ground. She told her attorney that she thought the paramedics were neglectful, that the paramedics refused to give Jimmy the help he needed because he was black. It was so fucking obvious, she thought. You could see it in her mind, see how the whole thing played out. It was obvious because Jimmy's life was full of more than his fair share of racist encounters. He had told her about the time that the cops had stopped Jimmy and Kathy as they walked on the streets of London. Jimmy dressed in that antique Royal Vet Corps jacket, guilty only of walking while black, or perhaps more accurately, walking while black with a white woman on his arm. Jimmy had also told her stories about touring with the experience in the States, about the restaurants in the South where he would begrudgingly eat with the rest of the tour crew. And Jimmy, the only black man in the joint, he'd managed to sit through an awkwardly quick meal, all white eyes in the place on him the entire time. The tour made its way to Seattle where a cop pulled a gun on Jimmy, a cop who was hired to protect him because he was walking hand in hand with a white woman. Other cops pulled their guns too. The whole situation turned into a standoff of extremely ignorant proportions and ended with hired cops walking off the job simply because they couldn't stomach Jimmy, a black man, walking with a white woman. Monica was convinced that the day he died was the same thing, that a couple of white paramedics walked into the flat, saw a white woman with a black man, and their inherent racism flared to the surface. Monica closed her eyes and envisioned the whole scenario clearly in her head. She could see Jimmy's life slipping away inside the ambulance. Every bump in the road that the ambulance hit, he felt it in his bones. His stomach went into revolt with every sharp turn. Each breath he took, it felt like it could be his last. He was sitting up in a stretcher, his shirt soiled with vomit and wine spots dried red wine throughout his hair, his eyes swarming around in his head. He felt his pulse quicken and then suddenly drop down to a dribble, and then it quickened again. He was just as surprised as anyone that he was actually conscious in the back of this ride. He could have sworn he felt dead there for a few minutes earlier in the morning. The paramedics both sat in the front of the ambulance, one driving, another riding shotgun. Shouldn't one of them be back here with me, Jimmy thought, fighting the waves of pain and nausea. Why wasn't someone taking his vitals, monitoring his pulse, making sure he remained in this world? I'll meet you in the next one. Don't be late. And they passed the first hospital. Through his half-masked eyes, he watched the hospital come and go through the ambulance window. He raised his arm, pointed out the window, mumbled some words, something to draw attention to the fact that they had just driven by a fucking hospital. His mumbling seemed to fall on deaf ears. And the paramedics weren't in any rush to get to their destination. They weren't in a rush, period. The two paramedics had arrived at Monica's rented flat about 10 minutes after she made the call. They took their time, 
didn't bust down the apartment door, didn't scatter and make up for lost time. They walked patiently into the bedroom, found Jimmy unconscious, and gradually got him up on the stretcher and packed into the ambulance. They slapped his face, attended to him, rustled around for some medical instruments in their bag, and within seconds, Jimmy's eyes had fluttered open slightly. He was still there, still inside that body, still with it. When they left, Monica remembered that they didn't turn the siren back on, just merged into traffic like any other vehicle driving on any other Friday. Jimmy wheezed, spattered some more, felt another wave of retching coming on. It was burning up. One of the paramedics clicked the stereo on. The chairman of the boards, you've got me dangling on a string, rolled through its giddy yet mournful chorus. And the paramedic riding shotgun snapped his fingers. Now this is music. Truth be told, this is my kind of black music. It's calm, catchy, strings are nice. Oi, too much of your people's music is loud and political. Paramedic driving chimed in. Say it loud, he's black and he's almost dead. And the two shared a laugh while the song played on. You've got me dangling on a string. Please don't let me drop, because you're everything I've got. Back in the stretcher, more reclined than upright, Jimmy began choking some more. He felt his airway clog up again, tasted the vomit there, lodged tight. That your girl back there at the apartment? The shotgun riding paramedic yelled towards Jimmy in the stretcher, twisting his neck just enough so that his voice would carry into the back. How many white women does that make for you? Oh, what's the problem? You don't like black ladies? Jimmy's face went flush as he lost more ability to breathe. He was too tired to move. He was slipping under again. He could feel it. He had come up for air, only to be humiliated and ignored by these racist assholes. And now they were just going to let him die here. He knew it. Looking down at his feet in the back of the short bus ambulance, listening to the chairman of the fucking board on this goddamn slow boat to China. When the ambulance pulled into St. Mary Abbott's Hospital in Kensington, Jimmy was under again. And the paramedics flung open the back doors, pulled the stretcher out, and went to wheel him into the emergency room. And they didn't check any vitals. They didn't take stock of the situation. They didn't look back as they casually walked away out of the hospital and back to their ambulance. They didn't give two shits, because it didn't really matter to them at all. Jimi Hendrix didn't matter to them at all. They got him there. It was someone else's job to care. The doctors noted the unusual amounts of red wine residue on Jimmy's clothes, in his hair, in his throat, in his lungs, if not necessarily in his stomach. It was coming out of his nose and his mouth. When one of the nurses saw Jimmy on the stretcher and shouted in shock, Oi, that's Jimi Hendrix! Who's Jimi Hendrix, the attending doctor responded. Moments later, the same doctor called it, confirmed Jimmy's long-running premonitions that he, James Marshall, Jimi Hendrix, was dead at 27, just months away from his 28th birthday. With Jimmy gone, it was just Monica's story against the world, and the world had questions, the world had doubts, the world wasn't buying her story about the death of the most famous guitar player on the planet. Not buying it at all. Not one bit.
The theory about Michael Jeffries better dead than alive, goonish takedown of Jimi Hendrix, and the theory about incompetent racist paramedics are arguably far-fetched. They seem more like attempts to explain the sudden death of a unique musical talent, that Jimmy's death couldn't have been so blah, so pedestrian, so cliched, that some sinister force must have taken him down, something fantastical. He was just too unique, too special, too immortal to die so predictably. The truth may have been less pulpy than the twin theories posited by Tabby and Monica, but the truth was tragic nonetheless. The truth about Jimi Hendrix's death goes like this. Jimi Hendrix took nine of Monica Daneman's Vesperex pills. That's nearly 20 times the recommended dosage. It was enough to take down a goddamn rhino. The autopsy concluded that he died from inhalation of vomit due to barbiturate intoxication, amphetamines, plus wine, plus secondol, and then a shit ton of Vesperex. He chugged the booze. He chugged the pills. He fell asleep on his back, and he didn't wake up when his body rejected the lethal cocktail. Intentional? Probably not. A dumb move made by a guy who was running on fumes and just wanted the world to stop for a moment so his body and mind could catch up? That's most likely what happened. But we'll never really know. Jimi Hendrix was buried at Greenwood Cemetery in Renton, Washington, a Seattle suburb. It was the first day of October in 1970. It was cheaper to bury Jimi in Renton than in Seattle. Between the naughty mess that was his estate and the paltry salary that his father Al earned as a landscaper, it just made fiscal sense to bury him there. Plus, his mother Lucille was buried there too. The funeral took place at the Dunlap Baptist Church. Only one reporter and one photographer got in the door. Hundreds of fans lined the streets outside. Jimmy's family was in attendance, as were Michael Jeffrey, Noel Redding, Mitch Mitchell, Buddy Miles, Johnny Winter, Alan Douglas, Miles Davis, and Devin Wilson. Devin flung herself at the open grave. A short time later, in February of 1971, she took another dive. This time, it was from a ninth-story window of the Chelsea Hotel in New York City. She was dead as soon as she hit the pavement on 23rd Street. The whole thing was shrouded in mystery. Was Devin Wilson pushed or did she jump? And there wasn't much of an investigation, Devin being Devin. As far as many were concerned, it was the junk up her nose and in her arm that did her in. Jimmy's dark shadow snuffed out, case closed. The tragic deaths of people in Jimmy's life didn't end there. It was only three days after Jimmy's funeral that Janis Joplin checked out in Hollywood. Heroin overdose. Jim Morrison followed a short nine months later, supposedly heart failure, in a bathtub in Paris. And like Jimmy, they too were only 27 years old. In March of 1973, Michael Jeffrey was traveling from Majorca to London to attend a trial on UK royalties for Jimmy's music. Depending on the verdict, he was looking to add another layer of lining to his already well-stuffed pockets. The Iberian Airways DC-9 he was on collided with a Spantex Coronado in mid-air over France. All 47 passengers, including Michael Jeffrey, were killed. Noel Redding was one of the few who called bullshit on the plane crash. They never identified Jeffrey's body in the wreckage. Surely he must be hiding on one of his islands with one of his many suitcases of money, dead and loving it. Most certainly not true, but Jeffrey was, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Anything's possible. In April of 1996, Monica Daneman was found guilty of contempt of court 
she had been lying to reporters about Jimmy's death when Kathy Etchingham had the coroner's inquest reopened. Her fantasy world about her relationship with Jimmy took on a life of its own after his death, and she remained consumed by his memory. The walls of her house were filled with paintings of Jimmy that she had created. She held on to Jimmy's black Stratocaster that he had been playing that last day. She wrote a book about her brief time with her supposed fiance, the inner world of Jimi Hendrix, which contained a lot of photos she took on their last day together. Two days after she was found guilty of contempt, she parked her Mercedes-Benz in her garage, closed the garage door, rolled her windows down, breathed in deep, filled her lungs with carbon monoxide. They were the last breaths she would take. She was 50 years old. Chaz Chandler was 57 when he died in his sleep at Newcastle General Hospital in July of 1996. He had been admitted to undergo tests for an aortic aneurysm. His heart gave out. Noel Redding had a rocky relationship with the Hendrix estate following Jimmy's death. In the 70s, he first sued Warner Brothers for hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages plus royalties, and then sued both Warners and Chaz Chandler for a cool three million. In 2003, he sued the Hendrix estate for another $5 million in royalties owned. A few months later, he was found dead by his manager at his home in Ireland. Unknown causes, and he was only 57. Mitch Mitchell died in a Portland, Oregon hotel room in November of 2008. He was on the last stop of a U.S. tour with the Experience Hendrix Show, a tribute show to his former group featuring high-profile musical guests. His death was due to natural causes, and he was just 61. Over the years, all these musicians and more were wrapped up and tied up in the ongoing legacy of Jimi Hendrix. His music, his legend, his place in the 1960s and in the pantheon of rock music architects. Though he only released three studio albums, one live album and one compilation album during his short lifetime, his posthumous catalog continues to grow. There have been releases galore of live shows and studio outtakes, but also lawsuits galore record companies, bandmates, family members, a lot of hands have dipped into the Hendrix pie. Jimmy remains the ultimate archetype for rock guitarists, for psychedelic music makers, for left-handers and freak flag wavers, and for those who like their fashion sense to raise a few eyebrows. If Jimmy had stopped searching along the way, stopped trying to find that thing, that thing that clicked, the right thing with his left hand, searching for something that made sense, the right band, or right song, or right girl, if he stopped searching, then he wouldn't have been Jimmy. He would have been just another dude from Seattle with a guitar and a head full of illicit drugs. He would have done what Little Richard told him to do, remain in the shadows. But there was always something new to seek out. Sometimes, like the music he made with Band of Gypsies, the results of the detour were great. Other times, like that last fateful night with Monica, they were deadly. But it was always Jimmy's move. Jimmy made it happen, and there was no way he wouldn't. People don't realize, as he once said, that a plastic cage is so easy to break. Jimi Hendrix, stone free, to do what he please. He can't stay, he's gotta get away. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Seven Club is scored and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer, editor, and co-producer. 
The 27 Club is mixed and engineered by Sean Cahalan and Matt Bowden, both of whom lent their considerable music talent to the scoring of this series as well. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, and Season 2 will feature 12 episodes on Jim Morrison. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and please spread the word about the 27 Club. As always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other podcast, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter, at DisgracelandPod. One way or another, I hope to be talking to you soon. Until then. What's up for your ears? From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.